Uh, Dear Saints, I bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters at First Scots Presbyterian Church in Beaufort. We're thankful for this flock. We're thankful for the Reformed witness that God has established here among you, not only in Mount Pleasant and in Charleston, but in our presbytery and in our denomination. It's always a, a great encouragement to me when, when our churches gather at Presbytery, and I know that the elders of this church will be like-minded with the elders of the church where I serve on myriad issues because we believe it's what the scriptures teach. And so it's a joy to lock arms with your elders and, and to proclaim the gospel. And we do pray for you often, and we ask that you would continue to pray for us down in Beaufort. Let me ask you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. I've been teaching in Hebrews uh, for about a year now in Buford, and this is uh, one of my favorite texts that, that we've been in. I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word, Hebrews chapter 1. We're just going to look at verses 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please be seated. I want you to imagine pastoring a church in the first century. 30 or so years after the death of the Lord Jesus, and most of your congregation comes from a background in Judaism, and they have come to a profession of faith in Christ. They left the beautiful temple in Jerusalem, and now they're worshiping in houses and graveyards. They left the intricate system of the Aaronic priesthood, and now their entire religious system hinges on an invisible high priest. They remember the daily and weekly and annual sacrifices, but now they offer no sacrifices because Christ was sacrificed once for all. They've left the comfort and status of being in the religious majority, and now they're they're part of a small, marginalized sect that's being maligned daily and can feel the heat of persecution coming. And you watch as your beloved flock, sometimes one by one, sometimes as a whole, they begin to grow jealous of what they left behind, uh, just like their ancestors did when they left Egypt. Some of them have already left the faith. Uh, Others of them are thinking about it Because they keep fixing their eyes on the visual, the social, the safe, and it's all so alluring to them to depart from this small sect and return to to the system of Judaism. What would you say to that church? I think it'd be tempting to rebuke them. 
you could heap upon them a heavy dose of religious guilt. Maybe you'd write them off and go find a, a better church. Well, that's the exact scenario going on in the letter to the Hebrews. Persecution is rising and numbers are dropping. But the author of this letter doesn't chastise them. He does something wonderful but unexpected. He ravishes them with the wonder and beauty and glory of Jesus Christ so that they would not want to look anywhere else. There's a lot of theories about who wrote the letter to the Hebrews. We really don't know, but we know this. He's, he's a faithful pastor who loves his flock very much despite the fact that they are so prone to wander. And he wants to show his people that Jesus Christ is infinitely more wonderful than everything they left behind to follow him. And so Hebrews is going to teach them that the cornerstone of Christianity, Christianity, the substance of our salvation, is not a system, it's not a temple, it's not the priests who labor day after day in the temple, it's not the sacrifices, it's not having the approval and respect of society, it's not the visual. It is Christ himself who is the substance of of our faith. And so the aim of this dear author, this pastor, is to fill his people's vision with the superior glory of Jesus Christ, that they may see how Christ alone is sufficient to save and to satisfy the people whom he loves so much, for whom he died. We're going to see that today by looking at three things from these verses. The first I want you to see is the superiority of Christ. The second is the salvation offered to us by Christ. And then third, we'll tie it all together, looking at the satisfaction that Christ alone can offer. So first, this pastor wants his dear flock to see the superiority of Christ. And you know as well as I do, as humans, it is in our fallen DNA to to struggle with grass is greener syndrome. And so whatever we have, we tend to think there is something better out there. That is the exact way that the serpent got to Eve and then to Adam. Has God really said? And he he convinced them that God was holding out his best from them. And that's what's going on here is these Hebrew Christians are starting to look with envy upon their former lives. So they think there is something better than following Jesus. And what this author wants them to see is that that old covenant system that is alluring them, the temple, the sacrifices, the priesthood, all of it exists not to point to itself, but to point to Christ. That's why those institutions exist. But it's always been a problem for God's people that we look at the outward symbol rather than the significance behind it. And so this pastor is saying to them from the beginning of Hebrews 1, don't look elsewhere. Don't look backwards to ceremonies and symbols. Look to Christ alone because all those things pointed forward to him. And he is superior to all of it. 
And so you work through Hebrews, and every chapter is about Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than the temple. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron. He's better than Joshua. And it just keeps going. And he's going to start, just even in these first couple of verses, to show them several ways Christ is superior. First, he shows them Christ has spoken a superior word. Look at verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. So, under the old covenant, God had spoken through, through prophets. He had spoken through dreams, through visions. At times, He even spoke through a donkey. Now, let's stop there for a second, because isn't it so easy to take for granted that our Creator speaks to us? He doesn't owe that to us. He doesn't owe us the Scriptures. In fact, when, when sin came into the world, God, have, God could have remained silent for eternity, but He did not. And so the Word of God is a surpassingly great gift to His people from God Himself. But if you've read the Old Testament, which would, would have been what these Jewish believers would have had, you know it's an incomplete book, and that's by design. Because it's a book without a conclusion. It's awaiting the fulfillment of all of it. And so it's like watching a movie that ends with a total cliffhanger, and then you've got to wait for the sequel to come out. Well, that's exactly what the Old Testament was. It was written to be incomplete so that when the Messiah came, that would be the final word. And when it says in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, he's saying to them, now God has finished the book. And the point that he's, all, he's making here is why would you go back to the old when the new has come? If you believed the word of the prophets, you should believe the word of Christ all the more because he's the great prophet. He is the word himself. Uh, now, as, as a point of, of application before we move on, this shows us why we don't need ongoing revelation. We don't need continuing revelation. In other words, we don't need someone to speak to us in tongues. We don't need someone to come to us and say, I have a word from the Lord for you. We don't need any book that purports to be God continuing to speak because we have all that we need in the Scriptures. And, and so if someone purports to have ongoing revelation, continuing revelation, either it contradicts the Scriptures and therefore it's patently false teaching, or it agrees with the Scriptures and it is superfluous. All we need to hear the voice of God is the Word of God. And so Christ has spoken a superior word. And then we see He's superior over creation. Verse 2 says it's through whom also he created the world. Verse 3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This dear pastor was convinced that the same person who had lived and walked among them three decades before was the very one who had created the world and was sustaining them. And when he says Christ upholds the universe, it's not merely that Christ is sustaining every molecule in creation, though he is, but it's more than that. He's actually the one who is carrying the universe forward. He is moving through history to work out his purposes in this world. What are his purposes? It's to establish a holy people, 
a people in whom the glorious image of Christ is being renewed and manifest to the world. And so Christ upholds all things and he's moving history. He's moving through the events and affairs of the creation to draw his elect to himself and to build his church all over the face of the earth. Now, we need to remember that because it's so easy as believers to think that what God really wants is to give us a good, happy, and healthy life. That sells well, doesn't it? You can go home and turn on your your TV today, and you will see preacher after preacher selling you that message, that all God wants for you is to be happy and healthy and have a, a good life. His true purpose is to make us holy. He is far more concerned about our holiness than anything else. And so what God is doing, what Christ is doing in the affairs of this world is sanctifying a people for himself. And then there's a third way we see Christ's superiority here. He's superior in glory. Look at verse 3. This is stunning. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The glory of God is the stunning beauty of all God's attributes, which are infinitely perfect. His perfect character, his moral purity, his awesome power. And Hebrews is saying all of those things radiate forth. In Jesus Christ. Separating God from Christ is like trying to separate the sun from its light. It's impossible. All of the wondrous beauty that is in God radiates in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. You know, this statement in verse 3, he's the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. There is no more glorious statement that could ever be made. This is saying Christ is the ultimate of ultimates. Stephen Charnock speaks of Christ this way. It's wonderful. He is light without darkness, love without unkindness, goodness without evil, purity without filth, and all excellency to please. Like the sun shines forth its brilliant light, Christ shines forth the effulgent glory of the Godhead. This means that as we read Scripture and we believe what it says about Jesus and his divine attributes, we are catching a glimpse of the awesome glory of God when we look upon Jesus Christ. The same Christ who has invited us into worship and has prepared a feast for us. He is the radiance of the glory of God. You know, that tells us worship is serious business as we gather to adore the one who is superior over literally everything else in all the earth and even the heavens. That's important because superficially, on the surface, Old Covenant worship looked more glorious, didn't it? You had the temple, you had the priesthood, you had the sacrifices, you had all of the ornate and intricate systems that that flowed from Old Covenant worship. 
And then you think about New Covenant worship as these saints were worshiping in catacombs, as they were worshiping in upper rooms. There was no earthly glory to it. There was not even a present, a physically present high priest. Yet New Covenant worship, in all its simplicity, is infinitely more glorious because Christ himself is at the center of it all. You know, true worship doesn't need to worry about being entertaining, does it? It's very, very popular today to put together praise bands and skit teams and, and all sorts of novelty and silliness. And churches are going to try to outdo each other in that to attract more people. That's not what you need when the glory of Christ is present. When Christ is preached, when his body is administered in the sacraments, his glory is seen and that is what draws and enthralls people. There's no such thing, as R.C. Sproul says, there's no such thing as boredom in the presence of a glorious God. Now, uh, we've talked about the superiority of Christ, but let's stop for a moment. Because all of that could be very bad news for us. See, if Christ were only the justice of God or the power of God or the righteous anger of God, then his anger would have melted this world the second sin entered in. But all of his perfect attributes are adorned with grace towards his people. It's in his grace that the superiority of Christ, the transcendence of Christ, becomes accessible to us. It becomes near to us. In Christ, we not only see one who is superior over everything in heaven on earth, but we see a heart that is absolutely overflowing with grace. That's the second way that, that this dear pastor wants his church to see the goodness of Jesus and that's the salvation that's offered to us in Christ. Look at the second half of verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We can think lightly of sin. In an eternity of eternities, God will never once think lightly of sin. Sin is filth before a holy God. And that filth must be removed before we can stand blameless before him. When it says that Christ made purification, it means that upon the cross, the sinless son of God purged all the sins of all his people for all time by taking them all onto himself. Just as when you wash dishes in order to make those dishes clean, a rag or a sponge has to become dirty, so too did Christ as our sins were laid upon him so that we could be made clean. And so that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of Christ. And what's amazing is that as we look upon Christ Bearing our sin upon the cross, in a sense at his lowest point, receiving the wrath that our sins deserve, we actually see his glory most clearly. 
Nowhere does the divine nature shine more brightly to the eyes of sinners than when in union with human nature, the Son of God suffered and bled to save sinners from the wrath of God. The Son's infinite nature gave to His finite sufferings infinite value so that our guilt might be removed, our sins forgiven, our consciences clean once for all. This is why He cried, it is finished, because He had made purification. It's significant in verse 3, it says that He sat down. Hebrews loves to make that point. Do you know why? Because Old Testament priests didn't get to sit down. There were no lazy boys in the temple. Because there was still more work to do. There was always more work to do. There was more sacrifice to be made. There was more purification to be made. It was never sufficient. But Christ sat down. Marking the completeness of his work. Now it's a tragedy. That is no understatement. It is a tragedy that some strains of Christendom have manufactured the idea of purgatory. Because the idea of purgatory means that there are still sins to be purged. There are still sins to be purified from us. You know, it's not just Roman Catholicism that teaches purgatory. We do it to ourselves sometimes, don't we? How often do we believe that even though we've repented of our sins and we've trusted in Christ, that we still bear the filth of our sin? We still carry it with us. Sometimes we can feel like Hester Prynne in the Scarlet Letter, can't we? Just, just bearing the guilt of our sin everywhere we go. He made purification. Just think about that, beloved. If you're trusting in Christ, your sins have been put away. Just think of the imagery of Scripture. They've been blotted out. They have been separated from you as far as the east is from the west. God has hidden them behind his back. He has cast them into the depth of the sea. He canceled the record of our debts. He nailed them to the cross. You who are in Christ have been perfectly purified before the Father. This is why crowds flocked to Christ not, not so much the religious elites. They didn't see a need for, for purification. They didn't see a need for forgiveness. But the down and outs, the people who had made a mess of their life, they flocked to Christ because in him they saw beauty and life and joy. And they knew that even sinners could come to him in all of his beauty. Because his beauty wasn't a vain beauty. It was a gentle, lowly hearted beauty. They saw in Christ this wondrous heart that loved the Father perfectly and at the same time invited people, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And this wonderful, this salvation that Christ offers, I hope we never get used to it. I hope it is always astounding to us. John Owen has this great line where he says something like, neither the angels in heaven nor any man on earth could have ever manufactured this story because it exceeds our imagination. What a God he is. As we look to Christ and we look away from ourselves and we see the one who hung the heavens in place, we see him who hung exposed in our place, wounded, bleeding, forsaken 
and dead. We see the one who is so holy that the thousands upon thousands of angels hid their eyes from him, but he makes himself visible to us. Look to that Christ, and as you glimpse the glory of Christ, then compare your sins with the power of his blood, your needs with his incredible sufficiency, your frailty with his resurrection power, your fickleness with his eternal steadfastness. That's the Jesus you see when you fix your eyes upon Christ. One of my heroes in the ministry, Robert Murray McShane, you probably have heard that name a lot. Do you know he died at age 29? So all that he accomplished and all of his writings and everything else that have outlived him was accomplished in a very short period of time. But McShane says, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace and all for sinners, even the chief of sinners. Live much, McShane says, in the smile of God. Bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love, and rest in his mighty arms. Christ Church, look to this Jesus. Looking to Jesus is not a quick glance over your shoulder out of the peripheral of your eye. When we look to Jesus and see him in his glory, he becomes the center of our vision. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. You know what's fascinating about this? Hebrews says that Jesus who loves you so much, he's a picture of what the God in heaven is like. He's a picture of God himself. Do you ever struggle with doubting or questioning that as if Jesus is warm and tender, Jesus loves me, this I know, but sort of like behind him, there's a disappointed father with his arms crossed just waiting for you to get it right or waiting for you to blow it one more time, waiting to eventually give up on you. You know, if I begin to think that way, my walk with Christ becomes a checklist, a list of things that I have to do to keep God off my back. And if I've been particularly dutiful lately, then I can come to him. But if I've I've struggled or grown lukewarm or if I've sinned, then I feel so distant. Hebrews is telling us here that a fickle God is a figment of our imaginations, that when we see the love of Christ... We are seeing the love of God himself, that the God of heaven infinitely loves all who are in Christ Jesus. And when my eyes are fixed on this Jesus, then my goal is not to appease God, but to enjoy God. If Christ is the reflection of who God is and Christ's heart is so tender towards us, doesn't that melt away that veneer of religious formalism? Doesn't that enable us to rip off our masks of religious hypocrisy and simply cast ourselves at the feet of the one who has seen us at our worst and yet loves us best? Doesn't that melt the chill off of our hearts to know that this Jesus is a picture for us of the God who is in heaven and his great love for us? 
Well, let me ask you a question then. If Christ is superior to all things and Christ has offered us so great a salvation, why in the world would we look anywhere else? That's what this pastor wants to say to his flock. Why are you thinking about going back to the old covenant when something so much greater awaits? And that there is a satisfaction that our souls crave, that only Christ can provide. That's the third thing I want you to see, the satisfaction that Christ alone provides. Think for a moment of what it does to our souls to behold something beautiful. And you and I have different uh, views on what's beautiful. Every person has a different aspect on that because we all see various glimpses of who God is and His created order. But we pay for concert tickets or we travel across the country to see the Grand Canyon, or we buy art, or we get up early to see a sunrise. Because we know that beauty is good for our souls. But of all the greatest beauties on the face of the earth, nothing compares to looking into the face of Jesus Christ. What Christ radiates to the Our eyes on the pages of Scripture are the wonderful, beautiful, diverse attributes of God. Uh, I read a quote from Charnock earlier. Let Let me continue that quote. He says, Are not all things infinitely short of Him? More below Him than a pile of dung is below the glory of the sun. But how often do you and me Instead of looking to this one who so delights and is able to satisfy us, how often do we look to lesser things thinking that they can satisfy us more than Jesus can? It's as if when sin came into the world, it was like a criminal who broke into a shop at night. But rather than stealing anything, what he did is he switched all the price tags around so that things that truly are worthy appear worthless, and things that are worthless appear worthy. That's what's happened to this sinful world. It's, we get it all backwards, and don't you feel that? And we live for very temporary things. C.S. Lewis likened it to playing in a mud puddle when a, a vacation at the beach awaits you. Do you ever feel that in your soul? I bet you do. Charleston is beautiful, isn't it? Everything's beautiful. Everyone's beautiful here. There's so much fun and leisure, and and it can become so easy to think that those things can satisfy you, doesn't it? Those things are more worthy than Jesus. Those things are more able to fill my soul than Jesus can. And so we begin to chase after those things, don't we? Uh, and, and we say it's only seasonal until the kids grow up, until I get this promotion. Whatever it is, we, we have this endless horizon out there of chasing after this world's goods. Uh, are there ever times where your envy of the world puts you at odds with seeking Christ and you have to choose what you're going to live for and what you're going to serve? 
I would dare say that happens every single day. If you are seeking to make Christ the chief vision of your life, then there are going to be things in this world that are going to seek to woo you away. If that's you, tempted to chase after the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, Hebrews is loaded with warnings about why you must not turn away, why you must hold fast. But today, we're just going to look at the foolishness of it. Nothing in this world compares to the glory of Christ. You can feast upon everything this world has to offer, and it is not worthy of one second spent in fellowship with the Lord Jesus. Nothing can satisfy your soul because your soul was made for what Christ alone can give. And when you distract yourself by chasing after the world and you divert your eyes from Christ, what happens is your soul becomes like a flower that's being deprived of water and it just begins to wither, doesn't it? We've got to be intentional to fix our eyes, Jesus' word, all the time. His is satisfaction that penetrates so deeply into our souls that not only can nothing in this world compare to it, but even the worst of worldly circumstances can't take it away. I mentioned John Owen earlier. Owen was one of the greatest of the Puritan theologians, but he had a very difficult life. Owen had 10 children precede him in death. He was harassed by the government for simply trying to pastor his people. He was scorned by society. He faced his own health issues. But listen to what Owen says about Christ. He says, A due contemplation of the glory of Christ will restore and compose the mind. It will lift the minds and hearts of believers above the troubles of this life. It is the sovereign antidote that will expel all the poison that is in them, which otherwise might perplex and enslave us. How could somebody who lost so much find such joy? Because his joy was not of this world. It was anchored in heaven. When we are satisfied in Christ, it is a stable, rich heart contentment that can give joy in the midst of even the greatest earthly losses. And the problem for you and me isn't the problem, not that we don't agree with that, but we're so easily distracted, aren't we? We're so easily distracted by the things around us. We're so easily, we're so quick to take our eyes off of Christ. It's no coincidence that John Owen, who could speak so wonderfully of the joy of knowing Christ in the midst of great affliction, he wrote a book called Mortification of Sin. And Owen understood, you have to put sin to death. You must kill sin or sin will kill you. See, sin offers so much, but ultimately what it accomplishes is it robs us of the joy that is ours in Christ Jesus. Beloved, is there a sin that's killing you? It may be a moral failure happening in your life behind closed doors, maybe Almost nobody knows about it except the all-seeing God. Maybe you're crying out for somebody to find out. Maybe you're terrified for someone to find out. Regardless, let me plead with you. It will zap your joy and it will wither your soul. 
And so please, beloved, repent. Speak to one of the elders after the service, but whatever it is that is stealing the life out of you, turn from it. But it might not be scandalous sin. You know, for, for so many of us, it's, it's just the distractions of this world and the things that captivate our hearts and captivate our attention. Now, I want to urge you to think about what it is that you treasure most in this world. And you think, I have to have this to be satisfied. I want to ask you, are you able to see how Christ is infinitely greater than that thing? That walking with Christ is infinitely greater than anything that 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 thing can provide you. If you can't say Christ is better than that hobby or this person, your reputation, your financial security, then real lasting joy and satisfaction will always be elusive because it's only found in Christ. See, to profess to be a Christian is not merely to say that we're churchgoers or to hold a biblical uh, value system or that we've accepted Christ. To profess to be a Christian is to place Jesus Christ at the center of our vision and to center all of our life and our aspirations and our affections upon Him. If we are not resolutely centered upon knowing and enjoying Christ, Your life outwardly may prosper, but your heart inwardly will wither. This can be true of anyone, even ministers. We we can seek to to keep up appearances. Pastor John and I serve together on the Candidates and Credentials Committee, which means we get to grill everybody that comes through for ordination. But we tell them, you may have all the right answers. You may be able to impress people outwardly. You may be visibly a great success while your soul is bone dry because you have set your sights not upon Jesus Christ, but upon reputation and money and job security or some hidden sin. We must keep our eyes fixed upon this Jesus. If you're not a believer here, I want to plead with you. I know just a couple of you. I I don't know far more but I'm going to assume that there are some who have not come to saving faith in Christ. And you're hoping that this world will be adequate, or maybe you can have both this world and Christ. Let me plead with you, do not wait, do not tarry, for you're not guaranteed tomorrow, but you are guaranteed that one day you will stand before God. And if you have not trusted in Christ, if you've not looked to Christ for your salvation, then There is no purification for your sins, and you will stand before God guilty and covered in your sins in the day of judgment. So I plead with you today, do not tarry, do not wait. Come to Christ now. To those who are believers, I want to plead with you that you would reorder your life so that Jesus Christ would be increasingly more at the center of your vision. And no matter how the most sanctified person in this room, there is still room for that. There is still room to reorder life more, to set our affections more and more upon Christ. I heard the story of a missionary preaching 
uh, he was visiting a foreign country. He was guest preaching, and he, he was preaching a series of, of evenings. And he was preaching on husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And as he's preaching, a man got up and ran out. And as preachers, we understand that. Sometimes we offend people. Well, the man was there the next day. And again, the same thing happened. And so the third day before the service started, the preacher confronted the man and said, Hey, I, I saw you ran out. Uh, have I offended you? Is something wrong? You keep coming back. What's going on? And the man said, nothing's wrong, but you preached on something that I haven't been doing at home. So I wanted to go and make it right before I forgot about it. You know, we can laugh at his awkwardness, but we have to admire his zeal to mortify sin and to live more and more to the glory of Christ. You and I must firmly determine that the glory of Christ alone can bear the weight of being the center of our lives. When you fix your eyes upon him and make him the joy and rejoicing of your heart and serve him with all that is in you, your soul will flourish in his salvation and you'll find the kind of contentment and satisfaction that he alone can provide and that he delights to provide. These other things, all these other distractions, they may help us waste our time, but they cannot satisfy our souls. What you and I need are the solid joys and lasting treasures that none but Zion's children know. Let's go to our God in prayer. Lord, as we catch this glimpse of the glory of Christ, and it is truly a glimpse for the eyes of our soul, perhaps could not bear much more, could not comprehend much more of this glorious Lord Jesus. Father, I pray that we would be so captivated with who he is and how wonderful he is that that we would be able to say, you can have all this world, just give me Jesus. That as we day after day after day turn our eyes upon Jesus, that the things of earth would grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you take